This is exactly right. If you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into. Whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve, the key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines. And June's Journey has that and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman, on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. Explore beautifully designed scenes from the 1920s like lavish estates and gardens, and don't forget to keep an eye out for hidden clues. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the detective club. There you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. June needs your help, but watch out. You never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed, but will you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. What a night have I passed, not being able to get to sleep from animals crawling continually all over my poor dear person. If once I had got to sleep, I would then have defied them, but it was not practicable. But what were these animals? Why, to know that, I looked this morning at the bed's head, and behold, I saw some hundreds of bugs on their march home, full of prey, I dare say. Though bugs do not like me in general, I suppose an overabundance of population had created a famine, for I was bit in three different places, all three on a very tender part which I shall forbear mentioning and which we Britons think is the best part of a bullock to make a steak of." At five this morning, I left Capua, glad to get out of such a dirty hole. However, I deserved it for going to bed last night without looking. Whereas had I proceeded in my customary manner, laying myself down on a board, bench, or table, I should have slept like a hero. But Naples had made me luxurious, and this night was I repaid for it. I slept, mercifully. Not well, but some. On looking, however, at my fair hand in the morning as it lay outside the bedclothes, I perceived it to be all, what shall I say, elevated into inequalities, significant of much. My pretty neck, too, especially the part of it Babby used to like to kiss, was all bitten infamously. I went this morning, while a man was taking down my bedstead to look for the bugs, which were worse last night, of course, having found what a rare creature they had got to eat— and investigated another lodging, in a beautiful little garden, villa-wise, rejoicing in the characteristic name of Flora Cottage. God knows whether there be bugs in it. And now, dear, if you think my letter hardly worth the reading, remember that I am all bug-bitten and bedeviled. I love 
have these old timey like letters about <laughs> their woes, you know? I mean, it's it's funny because I think the language style that it's written in is so like it seems so quaint from now that it kind of glosses over the horrors that they're experiencing. Yeah, it makes it sound like, what? But then you're like, oh, you're being destroyed by bugs? Great. While <laughs> yep. you sleep? While mm. you sleep. Yeah. But bug bitten and bedeviled is genuinely, I think, my favorite phrase that I came across. And there are so many contenders, but it's just so good. It's just so good. Ah. Uh, well, I found both of those quotes from a paper that is just chock full of old quotes about bedbugs called The Bedbug and the Age of Elegance. Ooh. The first one was by Lord Herbert from September 1779, and okay. the second was by Jane Welsh Carlyle, no relation as far as I'm aware, from 1843. And she had so many letters about bedbugs, an incredible number. Wow. Yeah. Poor lady. I know. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, hi, I'm Erin Welsh. And I'm Erin Almond Updike. And this is This Podcast Will Kill You. Today we're talking about bed bugs. <laughs> we are. <laughs> I'm so excited. Me Aaron. too. <laughs> it's gonna be fun. They're horrible little creatures to in the way that they invade your life and mm. make you miserable, make you have to throw out things and whatever. But also, they're so fascinating. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. they're really cool. They were, they're cool little bugs. And I can't wait to talk about them more and learn about them more. But first... It's quarantine time. It is. What are we <laughs> drinking this week? We're drinking Sleep Tight. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, for those of you that may not know that that's a phrase, I feel like it's a pretty common saying. Yeah, to sleep hear, tight and don't let yeah. the bed bugs bite. What is in sleep tight, Erin? It's a delicious little concoction with gin and blackberries, lime juice, pomegranate juice. Top it with a little tonic water. Mm, fantastic. It, it really is. We'll post the full recipe for the quarantini as well as the non-alcoholic placebo rita on our website, thispodcastwillkillyou.com. And our social media channels. We certainly will. On our website, you can find the usual things that you can find on our website. Transcripts, links to Goodreads list and our bookshop.org affiliate account, links to music by Bloodmobile, links to the sources for all of our episodes. You know, there's more there. Merch, Patreon, Mm -hmm. transcripts. Did I already say transcripts? I think I did. Mm -hmm. I think that means it's time for us to move on to the content now, unless we have any (laughs) other business. (laughs) No other business, Erin. Let's get into it, shall we? Let's do it right after this break. If you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into. Whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve, the key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines. And June's Journey has that and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman, on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. Explore beautifully designed scenes from the 1920s like lavish estates and gardens, and don't forget to keep an eye out for hidden clues. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the Detective Club. There you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. 
June needs your help, but watch out. You never know which character might be a villain. Shocking family secrets will be revealed, but will you crack the case? Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. So this is technically like jumping ahead all the way to the current status just a little bit, but I really like this quote. <laughs> um, and I just feel like it gives so much context for like why this bedbug story is just so good. Um, so I'm going to start with it. Okay, ready? Okay. <laughs> so this is from a 2012 paper titled Bedbugs, Clinical Relevance and Control Options. Not only was the reappearance of this pest unexpected, but the degree of the resurgence has almost been met with awe by many in the pest management industry. <laughs> awe. Awe. But it's the unexpected part that gets mm-hmm. me because... I know. Was it really unexpected? Was it? We'll get there eventually. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but first, let's talk about bed bugs, shall we? Uh-huh. Yeah, I think that's why we're here. That's why we're here. We're going to talk about what these bugs even are what they do to us. And that's it. That's all I'm going to talk about. And then we'll hear from you. (laughs) Okay. It's a good start. Thanks. So bed bugs are obviously bugs. They're insects. They're in the family Semicidae in the order Hemiptera, which are in fact true bugs. So you're allowed to call them bugs. True bugs. We have talked about true bugs on this podcast before in our Chagas disease episode. Mm -hmm. So Bed bugs are in the same order, but are very different bugs than kissing bugs, which are what spread Chagas disease. However, like kissing bugs, semicids or bed bugs are also hematophagous or blood feeding insects. Bed bugs are flightless, they're kind of little, like oval shaped, very small, like one to three millimeters. And they are incredibly flat, like amazingly flat-bodied. Both the males and the females have to blood feed on vertebrates in order to survive. And there are at least 90-ish, maybe more, species of semicids, but only a handful tend to feed on humans. And the two that most commonly and most preferentially feed on humans and therefore are the most important for us as humans are the common bedbug, Cymex lectularius, and the tropical bedbug, Cymex hemipterus. So those are the two that I'm going to focus on entirely. So whenever I talk about bed bugs, I'm talking about those two species, the common and the tropical bed bug. But there are so many more. So many. And like our friends, the kissing bugs that we talked about in Chagas disease episode, these insects feed on blood throughout all of their life stages. They don't metamorphosize like a lot of insects we know and love and talk about on this podcast more often, like flies or mosquitoes or even ants and beetles and things. 
But instead, what bed bugs and all true bugs do is they go through nymphal instars. And bed bugs have to blood feed at each one of these stages in order to grow into the next instar. How many stages are there? In general, five nymphal instars. And then, so they have to feed at each one of those. And then the females have to feed every time in order to make eggs as well. So they have to continually feed to be able to continue making eggs. And how often do they need to feed? Great question. In general, they feed every few days or so, maybe every three to seven days. However, they can survive for very long periods of time, and exactly how long depends on what paper you read and, of course, the environmental conditions and everything. But we're talking potentially months without blood feeding, and they can just hang out and survive. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. yep. Love that, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So those two species, Cymex lectularius and Cymex hemipterus, the common and the tropical bedbug, prefer human hosts, but they're not terribly picky. So they'll also feed on our pets and other domestic animals, even birds. They can cause a lot of damage to poultry flocks, etc. But in general, bedbugs tend to be attracted to their hosts, both by the carbon dioxide that we breathe out, as well as our body heat, and then a whole bunch of other potential chemicals and caramones that we give off that they can detect. And I don't know what these are. And I knew you might want to ask. (laughs) But they can detect like a really wide variety of chemicals. So we're potentially emitting a bunch of different little things while we sleep that they're attracted to. (sighs) Bedbugs are, you would think, like the least impressive movement-wise. Like they can't fly They can't jump. They just walk. They can scuttle. They can scuttle. (laughs) Very fast. (laughs) They are. They are very fast, and they can walk a surprisingly long distance for how incredibly tiny they are. And so the way that they generally live their life is that, like I mentioned, they feed just every few days. And then once they have a nice big blood meal, they scuttle off. And they go and rest, and they lie dormant while they digest that blood meal. And because they do not live on us like fleas or lice, they generally are found on our bedding or chairs or upholstery where they can hide during the day and come out only at night to feed. These bugs are photophobic, which is part of why they like a nighttime snack. And their peak feeding tends to be between 1 a.m. and 5 a.m., which also happens to be when we tend to sleep the most deeply. I just love it. I know. I mean, you have to admire it. You have to. (laughs) How can you not? Oh, my goodness. Once they've had their fill, they crawl or scuttle on back to their nests, which are called refugia. I mean, that's kind of cute. Isn't it? I love it. (laughs) And they do aggregate there because they release a whole bunch of pheromones for each other to help them find these little nests, these little refugia, which also I read helps them with like water conservation. Love that. Oh, that is amazing. Mm -hmm. Having a whole bunch of them all together, you know, rather than like living all alone. 
Yeah. And in addition to having these aggregation pheromones, bedbugs also have alarm pheromones. So if you find their little abodes and then you start killing them and it smells really bad or weird or some descriptions say sickly sweet, Mm -hmm. that is the alarm pheromones that these bedbugs are releasing to warn any other little nests or refugia. Scuttle away, scuttle away. They found us. That is so interesting because I came across several quotes describing how horrible they smelled Uh or how distinctive they smelled, and it never occurred to me to wonder why they smelled. (laughs) Yeah. And in general, at least from what it seems, is a lot of that smell, it's possible that maybe some of it is those aggregation pheromones that we're smelling, you know, if it's just like there all the time. But I think a lot of it, most of the time, is in the context of them releasing alarm pheromones. So we found their nest, and now they're releasing all these pheromones, and now you smell it for the first time. That is incredible. I know. The other way that you can find their little nests is poop. Their poop. (laughs) Fecal spotting. So little black little dots in the corners and crevices of mattresses or bed frames or walls. Those are usually one of the first signs or indications of a bed bug infestation. Rather than finding the bugs themselves, it's usually fecal spotting first, and then you have to look really hard to find the bugs. Hmm. So, <laughs> Female bed bugs. I tried to get a handle on just how many eggs they lay because it seems very important when we're looking at bed bug infestations because they are impressively good at spreading. And yet, I was not all that impressed with how many eggs an individual female can lay. One of the papers that I read said that they lay five to eight eggs a week, adult females, for 18 weeks. That's, like, surprisingly low. Right. And per Aaron math, that's only, like, 90 to 144 eggs, which is not that much. But then other papers suggested it's more like 200 to 500 eggs in a lifetime, which is more. Okay. But still not as much as I expect for an insect that can spread as rapidly as we know that it can. I wonder... Because when we think of insects, we think of them laying or arthropods laying tons and tons of eggs, sort of like in a bet hedging Mm -hmm. strategy, right? 10% of them survive to be larvae, 10% of them survive to be nymphs, et cetera. Right. So what is the in-star survival rate or mortality rate for bed bugs? Do they survive better because there are fewer? What is maternal care like? I have so many questions now. <laughs> I have I have those same questions. I don't have answers for them. <laughs> but yeah, it's a really good question. You would think maybe maybe it is quite a lot higher because they live in these little refugia, right? So maybe because they're living in such close association with hosts, maybe they have a better chance at survival, maybe et cetera, et cetera. I don't yeah. know. But yeah. It's it was an it was an interesting number. So a few hundred eggs. Ah. And yet <laughs> and, and just yet. wait. <laughs> and for those of you who wonder how long are they biting me for, an adult tends to take about 10 to 20 minutes to become fully engorged. So they're biting you every couple of days, 10 to 20 minutes at a time, etc. 
hundreds of bugs laying hundreds of eggs. Gold. Okay. Yeah. Love that. Mm-hmm. There was also, I will say, in the bedbug literature, aside from the human clinical side of things, which is what I'm about to get into a little bit more, there is a lot of very interesting stuff in the literature about what I guess is one of the other very interesting parts of bedbug biology. And that is that the way that they mate, which is very different than most bugs, and this is that the males pierce the female's abdominal wall in order to inseminate them, not the genital tract directly. This process is called traumatic insemination because it's literally causing direct trauma to the abdominal wall of the female. Two questions. Okay. Is traumatic insemination common across all bedbug species? And the second question is, what consequences does this have besides insemination? Great questions. So whether all species of bedbugs do this, I don't actually know because I really only read about these two species, but I'm pretty sure that this is common across semicids in okay. general. Okay. Yeah. Now, what consequences does this have? Kind of a lot. And in fact, it has been shown that this process can actually reduce survival in the females, which is fascinating. It has also led to the evolution of an entirely new, like, paragenital tract, which is still, though, not actually used for insemination. It's generally still the abdominal wall, but it has led to really strong sexual selection in various ways. Like what? I didn't dive deep into anything beyond that because there's simply too much other ground to cover. How on earth did this evolve? <laughs> oh, Aaron, I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> well, and also, so the genital tract is used for depositing eggs? Right. Yeah. So that's still how eggs are going to be laid is through uh-huh. the genital tract. Right. But it's not how insemination occurs. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I knew that, but it's just still, it's mind-blowing. I know. And it's really, it's really weird. Yeah especially that it can reduce survival. Anyways, that's all I've got. I got papers you can read more. People can get really into this and maybe we'll get some cool, fun answers out of it. Let's move on to what we tend to focus on on this podcast, which is like, what happens to us humans? Yeah, but what about humans? (laughs) What about us? (laughs) When we get bitten by these bugs. No doubt, the most common thing that anyone is going to get from a bed bug bite is localized skin reactions, meaning we're itchy. So sorry in advance, everyone's going to be itching for the rest of the time that I'm talking, if you're not already. So how does this process of feeding actually work, and why do we get so itchy from it? Like pretty much all hemiptera, bedbugs have these mouthparts that are made specifically for piercing and sucking, Other hemiptera use this type of mouth part for piercing plants and sucking out their sap or for piercing the exoskeleton of other bugs and sucking out their guts. Bed bugs use them for piercing our skin and sucking out our blood. So they have these very fine little needle mouths. They stick them into us. They inject into us their own saliva, which contains a whole bunch of proteins, many of which are contain anticoagulant properties, which makes sense. 
Some of these proteins help with vasodilation so that they get more localized blood flow to the area. Some of them inhibit platelet aggregation and activation, which is the first step of our clotting cascade. See our hemophilia episode for details. (laughs) Some of them actually inhibit factor 10, which is fascinating, which is another part of our clotting cascade, in order to just further delay blood clot formation. I just, it's really impressive stuff. It's unclear if anything that they inject serves to anesthetize our skin, but these are teeny, 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 tiny little needle mouths. So even if it doesn't, it's unlikely in general that we probably feel this because of just how small those needles are. Then they suck up blood, withdraw their little needle, and crawl back to their refuge. What you may see after the fact right away are maybe little pinpoint flecks of blood on our sheets. But very often, you won't see any evidence that you got bitten by bed bugs overnight until your skin reacts to it at a future point. Now, one big question is, how long does it take to have a reaction to bed bug bites? And that is not as easy of a question to answer as you might think. A lot of the literature says that it might take many days, like several days. But it really depends person to person, as I'll get into, like what each person's specific reaction might be. And in some people, it's very possible to have a reaction within 24 to 48 hours. Okay. So it's not very clear cut if bites, for example, appear on your body when exactly the bites actually occurred. Does that make sense? Yeah. So like if you just came back from a trip... And a week later, you're like, I have bites. Are they from the last hotel I stayed in? Right. Or Or are they from last night? Or Or did I bring them back from the hotel that I stayed in and now they're with me? Exactly. Are there certain parts of you that bed bugs like to bite? Let's get into it, shall we? Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about what it looks like, where you find them, etc. If someone is going to have a reaction to these bed bug bites, which not everyone does, what you usually see initially are little, and by little I mean like two to five millimeters, so pretty small, flat red spots. And yes, it is slightly more common, Erin, that you might see these spots on your arms or your legs or your neck or your face. This is not for any other real reason other than clothing can really help protect against bites. So arms, legs, neck, face, these are the places that are most likely uncovered in bed. Anywhere that's uncovered can potentially get bitten. These little flat red spots can then progress over time to these round or kind of oval-shaped wheels, kind Mm. of like hivy-looking like slightly raised bumps, though they're not true hives, but they kind of can look a lot like hives. They can actually enlarge quite a bit. So now instead of looking at little two to five millimeter dots, you might have two to six centimeter wheels and they can be really, really itchy. Mm -hmm. 
And if you have a whole bunch of these bites, then these individual wheels can kind of coalesce into what looks like a more widespread rash. And the more that you scratch at it, the more that it can exacerbate this trauma and not only spread the what looks like the rash and the itching, but also can make it harder to see what's really like going on underneath on the skin itself because of all this scratching. And with repeated exposures, do you get more sensitive to bed bug bites? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I'll get into it a little bit more later, but the truth is that we don't understand the pathophysiology of this response. Like, why do some people have really severe reactions to bed bug bites, and other people might be living with bed bugs for months and never even really know, right? It's very, very rare, but sometimes people can have even more severe reactions where they end up with systemic symptoms like fevers and feeling really cruddy from how many bug bites they've gotten. And we don't really understand this reaction itself. But there is some evidence, at least, that it's maybe in part like an allergic response where we have an elevation in IgE, which mediates a lot of our allergic responses and our hypersensitivity reactions. So yes, there is data, though the studies are not great, that suggests that with recurrent exposure, you're more and more likely to have a reaction of some kind. Mm -hmm. So studies suggest that like, if you give someone enough bites, eventually almost everyone will develop some kind of a reaction to bed bug bites. But with a single exposure, maybe less than 50% of people will have any kind of a reaction at all. Okay. And like I mentioned, even the time frame of how soon after a bite you might develop that reaction is a little bit unclear. So if it's a very severe reaction, then maybe within 24 to 48 hours, you might see the initial little red dots that then progress over a number of hours or a couple of days. But if someone has only been bitten a couple of times in their life, then maybe it is a few days before you notice anything. But it all kind of depends on not only how many exposures someone has had, but how sensitive they are, maybe how much of a hypersensitivity reaction they have at baseline, et cetera, et cetera. Often in the literature, bed bug bites are described as being linear. So like all in a little line along your arm or along, along your leg. So they feed and then they move and they feed and then they move and then they feed? <laughs> I love this question. <laughs> um, almost certainly no. Okay. <laughs> and and I, I'll link to a paper that, that proposed like several different possible hypotheses as to why we sometimes see these linear bites like all in a little line or a lot of times they're described as in groups of three, which is called breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Oh, my God, that's really cute, isn't it? It's <laughs> horrific, but cute. It's horrible. <laughs> but, yeah, one of the proposed hypotheses was, oh, are they are they biting and then maybe getting disturbed? So then they have to move a little ways and then biting again. But no, the best hypothesis that I saw for this is that it's most likely groups or bunches of bed bugs that are all kind of lining up and biting you all at once. Oh my gosh, buffet style. Buffet style, especially because when bed bugs feed, they remember that they're hiding, say, in the corner of your mattress all day, right? Then you lay down for bed in your tank top 
with your shoulder exposed. You're sleeping on your back, so your shoulder is like, you know, pushed up against your mattress. And these bed bugs crawl out from underneath the underside of your mattress in the corner, and they crawl up, and your shoulder is in contact with the bedding. These bugs like to maintain contact with the bedding during feeding. So they're going to all kind of line up in a place that's easy for them to reach and just bite, bite, bite you all the way along. And so that's one of, I think, the kind of best hypotheses is that you have groups of bed bugs. Remember, they're secreting aggregation pheromones. They're telling their friends, hey, I found a great spot. So everyone's coming up. They're having a buffet where they can have close contact to the bedding so they can hop off when they need to. Not literally hop, but just, you know, release and then crawl (laughs) away. And that's most likely why we see sometimes these linear patterns. But... It's often also that you there is no pattern whatsoever to these bites. There's just a bunch of bites everywhere. It's so interesting because I feel like competition within a species is often such a strong driver of behavior, of certain adaptations, of everything. But with bedbugs, it seems like teamwork <laughs> has been decided <laughs> upon as like... The answer, the solution. Teamwork makes the dream work. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's just a hypothesis. I don't know that we have a lot of data to say that that's definitely what's happening here. Um, but the last kind of reaction that some people can also have is, again, in more severe cases, you can end up with kind of a blistery rash, more like bloody blisters or just like fluid-filled blisters, again, if you're having a really, really severe reaction. In truth, bed bug bites are very difficult to distinguish from really any other bug bite. And you really have to find the bugs themselves to be sure that what you're dealing with is actually bed bug bites and not other bug bites or scabies, which is very commonly confused with bed bugs, Hmm. or allergies to something else, like the new laundry detergent that you switched to, because this could look a lot like an allergic reaction, or a staph infection, although bites like this could get superimposed with things like a staph infection. So it is difficult to diagnose bed bug bites. Is it not common then to ever feel the bed bugs bite? Because I feel like our firsthand accounts were very much like, I am feeling them, they're crawling all over me. That's certainly what I read in doing research. It's a good question. In general, these bugs are tending to bite when we are asleep and generally not coming out until people are probably quite asleep. Now, insomnia or sleep disturbance, is very common in bed bug infestations. This can sometimes be caused by the actual like itch-scratch cycle where you've had so many bites that you're itchy, so you get awoken by this itching. Then you wake up, you scratch it. That exacerbates the reaction so you can't get back to sleep. So then if those bed bugs are there, are you feeling the bed bugs? Or do you just know that you have had bed bugs or you think that you have bed bugs so you're feeling things that are itching, but it's hard to know, is that really the bugs or is it is it not? I don't think that it's impossible to feel these bugs. They are, again, like one to three millimeters, so they're definitely visible and you could potentially feel them, but 
in general, they're biting when we are asleep asleep. So you're probably not really feeling them. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which is, again, why it can be so hard. And then, and then who knows how long after you've been bitten you have a reaction to it. You have a visible, you know, mark from it. So that's like most of bed bugs. I'm going to take us back to the beginning. Okay. Where you said <laughs> that bed bugs can crawl, scuttle mm-hmm. a, a surprisingly long distance. What is that distance? One paper that I read said up to 100 feet. I don't know how common that is, but definitely like numbers of feet. Like they can go from, say, like the corner of your room um, up onto your bed and then onto you. Yeah, your face says it all. I mean, yeah. In general, though, they're not probably crawling all around your house unless they have to if you're not, like, sleeping in the same spot every night. The way that they tend to be distributed longer distance-wise is they will take up residence in your luggage, in your sheets, and be moved from room to room, say, in a hotel, for example. They will be you know, on furniture or pillows, things that get moved around room to room, apartment to apartment, ship to ship on a cruise ship. Okay, so let's talk about some of the things that affect their longevity in these environments. I know Mm -hmm. that adult bugs can live for a very long time without having a blood meal. Mm -hmm. But I'm assuming that like many other arthropods that feed on blood, they're affected by humidity and temperature primarily? Yeah, definitely. So humidity, temperature, environmental conditions will affect not only how long they live in general, but also how long it takes for them to hatch and then develop into adults. But the other thing to know is that these are bugs that are very well adapted to human dwellings, which we often keep at relatively constant temperatures and honestly just make it really, really easy for them to live for a long time. So in cooler conditions, then they can live for potentially up to a year or more. If we keep our houses warmer, then maybe they're living for just a handful of months, like four, four and a half months or so, and taking only a few weeks or a couple of months to actually develop fully into adults. But certainly, they are susceptible to environmental conditions. They also can't survive a good vacuuming. Okay. <laughs> Putting them in a vacuum bag and then freezers will kill them. Hot, hot water, like washing all of your things with super hot water and then putting them in the dryer. Those things will kill them. So they're not like like a prion that's like impossible to denature. <laughs> right. <laughs> So I guess this is kind of, because this isn't our usual fare, Mm -hmm. at this point you would normally talk about treatment. Yeah. But are you going to talk about like pesticides or like what... (laughs) <laughs> what are you going to talk about? No, I don't I don't really have anything, honestly. Like okay. <laughs> you can treat the itching, right? Like topical steroids, systemic antihistamines, itch relief. That's that's all I have in terms of treatment. I'll talk more well, maybe I won't really actually. So let's talk about it now. I was going to say I'll talk more <laughs> about how you get rid of bed bugs later on, but I won't really. What I will talk about is how, like, insecticides aren't going to do you pretty much any good. 
um, because bed bugs have incredible resistance to yeah. pretty much all of the insecticides that we use. That ship has sailed. Yeah. So it really is like identifying that these bugs exist, finding their refuges, and then cleaning the heck out of them in order to get rid of them, which is really the only thing that you can do to actually treat the issue of bed bugs. Simple enough. Simple enough. It's not, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's not simple at all. Sounds like it is. And as I'll mention later on, it's also incredibly costly, especially Mm -hmm. when we look at how how quickly these can spread and therefore how how intensive the efforts have to be in order to eliminate them, especially when we're looking at things like apartment buildings where you have a lot of housing units in one building, hospitals, hotels, cruise ships, like any place where you have a lot of people sharing space, especially sharing bedding. It's a it's a major, major issue trying to kind of actually get rid of all of these. Yeah. But that's primarily bed bugs and the issues that they cause for us as humans. Aaron? Yes, Aaron. Tell me. <laughs> <laughs> have they always been with us? I'm guessing. I have some guesses here. How did we get here to where we are today? Oof. Tell me about these little bugs, please. Yeah. There's a lot to tell, so I better get started right after this break. I think that the best way to talk about the evolutionary history of bedbugs is to first talk about what we used to think we knew so that we can then appreciate how that history has almost been completely rewritten in the past few years. Ooh, love. Mm-hmm. So like you mentioned, Aaron, when we talk about bedbugs in the context of human infestations, we are generally talking about these three species. You talked about the two, uh, the common bedbug and a tropical bedbug, Cymex lenticularius and Cymex hemipterus. Uh, and then there's also mentioned commonly as like a human biting bedbug is Leptocymex bauti. And these are three species, like you said, out of a family of over 100 species, I think, at this point. What do these other species of bedbugs do? Well, they all feed on blood. Mm -hmm. But generally speaking, that blood either belongs to water birds, other birds, or bats. But if you look at the evolutionary relationships among all of these other species in the Cymicidae family, stuff like which species are oldest, which are more closely related than others, which evolved most recently, what researchers found by looking at these things is that the oldest of these species, the one that is closest to the forms that are now extinct, they feed on bats. Which would reasonably point towards bats acting as the earliest hosts of all bedbugs. 
So the story would go that ancient bedbugs encountered bats and fed on their blood occasionally until occasionally became obligately Mm. as the bedbugs began to rely on these mammals for their food. Got it. And so the story continues that when early humans began moving into caves for shelter, bedbugs were already there feeding on bats And then these bedbugs were like, oh, hey, it's free real estate. Here's a brand new host that we can take advantage of. And then as ancient humans evolved into different species and then spread across the globe, they took bedbugs with them, which subsequently evolved into different species. That is how the story went for a very long time. But that story is now a, or so we thought, type of story. Ooh. <laughs> so there's a paper from 2019 in Current Biology by Roth et al. that puts it pretty plainly in the title. Quote, bedbugs evolved before their bat hosts and did not co-speciate with ancient humans. The end. Do I need to say anything more? <laughs> no. <laughs> Except maybe like, what? Why? How? (laughs) I may not need to, but I will. (laughs) So it turns out that the earliest fossil of a close relative of bedbugs would put the origin of bedbugs back to about 100 million years ago. So like dinosaurs. Dinosaurs. Yeah, exactly. I love when we talk about bugs feeding on dinosaurs. I know. I know. We should somehow try to find a way to do a whole episode (laughs) about it. I don't know how. Especially a bed bug because they're so little, Erin. How do they pierce dino skin? That's a great question. I love this. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but the other really cool thing is that they probably did because when these bed bugs evolved a hundred million years ago, they were already pros at blood feeding. What? They were already obligate blood feeders, it appears, rather than, you know, as we had thought, sort of slowly incorporating it into their lifestyles. What? And so that means that their ancestor also already specialized on blood. But whose blood? Whose blood? We don't know. (gasps) We'll never know. Probably not bats, unless we're totally wrong about bat evolution, since the (laughs) earliest known bats didn't emerge until I read around 30 million years after bedbugs did. That's a long time. That's a pretty long time. Yeah. So which animal or animals served as the earliest host of bedbugs? Total mystery at this point. Hmm. But from those mystery hosts, bedbugs found their way onto bats and then onto birds and then back to bats or from one species of bats to another species of bats and so on, diversifying along the way. Okay. And so the three bedbug species that feed on humans arose as part of this diversification process. And the species themselves were already established before they started feeding on humans. Hmm. In fact, these species emerged around 5 to 10 million years before any member of the Homo genus existed. Wow. Yeah. They're old. Very old. Unlike this previous story that we used to tell about bedbugs and humans and bats and so on, the evolution of these generalist bedbug species didn't happen alongside ancient human evolution into new species but rather that these bedbug species were introduced to humans in three independent events. Hmm. 
when those events occurred and which early human species were first parasitized, we still don't know that or don't okay. know that yet, maybe. Okay. But what does this mean for us today? In terms of how we deal with bed bugs, probably not much. Okay. That's more about insecticides and creative treatment strategies and so on. But it does bring up many interesting questions about the human history of these bed bugs. How co-evolution of humans and bedbugs didn't seem to happen in the ways that we thought it did, as well as something I find super interesting, which is what drives host switching. Mm. Like, why does a bedbug feed on one species and then feed on a different species? Right. Or why does a bedbug start to feed on multiple species? Yeah. And then these trade-offs between being a parasite that specializes on just one species or a parasite a that's a generalist, generalist that's like, yeah. I want to feed on everything. And then like, can it happen where a specialist becomes a generalist and then goes back to a specialist? Like there's so much there that's absolutely fascinating. And that is honestly like bedbugs are such a great group of organisms to study that, hmm. like host switching and specialist and generalist trade-offs. And I love it. I love it. But that, I mean, I could spend the whole episode talking about that aspect of it, but I think I, I probably should talk a little bit about the human history of these little bugs. The beginnings of the long and fruitful and frustrating relationship between humans and bedbugs, that might be a bit murky still. But we can speculate, at least, that as humans settled in larger groups and built permanent or semi-permanent shelters, bedbugs were there to keep them company, or at least they arrived shortly after, adapting to the diurnal sleeping patterns of humans, which is... So cool. So amazing. Yeah. As well as our less hairy bodies compared to bats. Oh, Wow. So, like, they had to crawl, scuttle differently. Huh. I mean, everything about it is... Ugh. I never thought about that, but yeah. It's so cool. In terms of archaeological evidence, the oldest evidence of bedbugs cohabitating with humans dates back to around 3,500 years ago in ancient Egypt. So there were preserved bedbugs that were identified as Cymex reticularius found in a city called Akhetaten in the times before King Tut, in the place where tomb builders and guards likely slept. So like huh. in a sleeping chamber. Okay. And they hung around, as evidenced by a papyrus from about a thousand years later, that described a spell to keep them away. Ooh. And the bedbugs also spread, popping up in what is now Iraq by at least the 9th century, they appear in ancient religious texts such as the Talmud. If we take the archaeological samples from ancient Egypt as sort of the origin point and then also use that in combination with like these references in ancient texts to bedbugs, we can assume, we can guess that the bedbug spread from ancient Egypt to the Middle East and then to Europe and Asia. And many of these ancient texts talked about bedbugs the way you might expect them to, the way that we talk about bedbugs today, as bothersome pests, how to look for signs of bedbugs, how to keep them away, and so on. 
But at least a few of these ancient scholars had a kind of when life gives you lemons, make lemonade outlook. (laughs) Stop it. (laughs) Like instead of lemons, it was like when life gives you bed bugs, make a potion with meat and beans or wine to treat fevers, cure snake bites or get leeches off of you. Like from the bugs? Mm -hmm. Like you take the bugs and you make them into a little potion? Yeah. Ground bed bugs. Ground up. Bed bugs. Uh-huh. <laughs> Love it. The beans kind of, it it cracked me up. And I think that Pliny the Elder also was skeptical of the beans, but he did support the use of bed bugs to treat earaches by burning the bugs, combining their ashes with rose oil, and injecting it. Into what? Yourself, I guess. Your ear canal? I don't know. Not your ear. I have a real thing about bugs and ears. (laughs) I know this about you. So I, oof, (laughs) that gets me. Mm -hmm. You know, we we love these ancient cures, but in the case of bed bugs, they weren't just ancient cures. Okay. The 1896 edition of the American Homeopathic Pharmacopoeia includes a recipe for a tincture 1896, of bedbugs to treat malaria. Other uses of bedbugs included to treat constipation, coughs, hemorrhoids, liver complaints. What is a liver complaint? (laughs) I've always wanted to know. Uh, Skin ailments, frequent yawning, among other, like many other things. I don't, I don't, I... I literally don't know what to say. You know, I'm guessing it's because they were there and they were abundant. And it was like, surely there must be a reason why these things exist. Anyway. Okay. (laughs) The ways that you could ward off bedbugs in the ancient world were just as inventive as the uses for the critters. (laughs) So according to the Greek philosopher Democritus around 400 BCE, you should hang the feet of a hare or a stag at the foot of your bed to keep the bed bugs away. Oh, okay. An alternative solution would be to hang a bear skin or put a bowl of water under your bed while you're traveling. Hmm, okay. Speaking of traveling, of course, the bed bug was a very frequent and successful hitchhiker. So it arrived in Greece at least by 420 BCE, Italy by 77 CE, China by 600 CE, Japan around the same time, Germany by the 11th century, France by the 13th, England by the 16th, and on to the Americas with some of the earliest trips of boats going over there. As the bed bugs spread across the world, you know, it's it's not like it was a few bugs that popped up here and there. The bed bug is an incredibly successful establisher, right? Like yeah. once it got brought to a new place, it survived, it thrived, yeah. really to the point where it became so prevalent in their new places of residence that they earned their fair share of names, like these different local names that were used to describe these bugs. So let's get into a couple of these names. Okay. In ancient Greece, the word they used was chorus, C-O-R-I-S, which means to bite, and allegedly gave rise to the name for coriander, because when you crush the fresh leaves and seeds, it's supposed to give off a smell like that of crushed bedbugs. Fascinating. Yeah. The name Cymex was given to the bugs by scholars in ancient Rome. Cymex meaning bug. Hmm. 
And later, of course, that would become its genus name, along with the species name Lutecularius, which was supplied by Linnaeus in the 1700s. And Lutecularius translates to, quote, of the bed or of the couch. Bug of the bed. Bug of the bed, I mean. It's apt. In ancient China, the bugs were generally called stinky bug, which is also similar to what people in France called them when the bed bugs arrived there in the 13th century. And in Japan, floor bug or floor louse. In Spain, chinche. In Germany, the newly arrived bed bugs, as of the 11th century, would be called various names that translated to the following Nightcrawler, Paper Flounder, and Little Venereal. <laughs> But the English word was short and sweet and so perfect that it literally has stood more than the test of time. Bug. Not bed bug, just bug. Just bug. So like that's where the word bug came from was bed bugs. That's what it was referring to. Mm -hmm. Are you serious? That's what I took from this research. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. As the bedbug found its way into city after city, home after home, it acquired more names along the way, like Redcoat and Mahogany Flat in what would become the U.S., and it also lent its name to towns like Bedbug Hill, New Jersey, which I think only exists as Bedbug Hill Road these days, and the California mining town that was named, it kind of like switched between names, either Bedbug or Freezeout. Oh, okay. <laughs> I guess Bedbug in the warmer months and then Freezeout freeze in the colder <laughs> months. <laughs> As the Bedbug found its way into our homes, our suitcases, <laughs> and our beds, it also began to occupy a bigger and bigger portion of our hearts and minds. Is at least how I am going to <laughs> think of it. Basically, what I mean by that is that people began to write about the bed bug and include it in novels, poems, paintings, songs. You can find references to bed bugs in works by Upton Sinclair, Sinclair Lewis, Langston Hughes, John Steinbeck, so many others. And bedbugs featured prominently in many early blues songs like Black Snake Moan by Blind Lemon Jefferson and Mean Old Bedbug Blues, as well as country songs and calypso songs. And bedbug didn't always mean bedbug, of course, but sometimes it was a little bit of a innuendo uh, term, like, mm -hmm. you know, eyebrow. Venereal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Little venereal. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it would be like the bed bug wants to sneak under the covers and bite this lady's butt or something like that. Ooh, okay. So, mm -hmm, yeah, you should look up some of these lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> but just because the bed bug started to be included in music and art and literature, it didn't mean that people were like, oh, you know what? Okay, I guess bed bugs are here to stay. Let's just <laughs> welcome them with open arms and mm -hmm. lift the covers to hop on in. The battle to get rid of these bugs and stop them from spreading was constant, like absolutely constant and frustratingly largely unsuccessful, or at least we can assume so given the frequent turnover and wide variety of treatment options. Mm. You could use the smoke of ox dung, 
horsehair, arsenic, these are all smokes, lupins, and cypress. You could combine saltpeter, soft water, shaving soap, and aqua ammonia. Mm -hmm. You could put on a nightlight and drizzle turpentine over your sheets and pillows. Don't, please don't. Yeah, yep, right. (laughs) I feel like especially that last one, turpentine in Uh your sheets. Yeah kind of shows that if you're willing to inhale arsenic smoke all night Mm -hmm. or sleep in turpentine-soaked sheets, the bedbugs must have been horrible. Right. A real, real issue. Real issue. And there is one account. Who knows if it's an exaggeration? Probably. But it described how in the 19th century U.S., bedbugs could be scooped from the walls of sod houses and measured with a spoon. That's incredibly gross. Uh-huh. Uh-uh. And our firsthand accounts were just a couple from so many describing the horrors of having to spend a night in a incredibly infested room or bed. And I couldn't resist including a few more in here. Please. Because there are so many just like, uh, it, yeah. I'm so itchy. <laughs> <sighs> From the Reverend James Woodford, describing his 1786 stay in London, quote, I was bit so terribly with bugs again this night that I got up at four o'clock this morning and took a long walk by myself about the city until breakfast time. The next night, quote, I did not pull off my clothes last night, but sat up in a great chair all night with my feet on the bed and slept very well considering (laughs) and not pestered with bugs. Okay. End quote. Yeah. Or a description given to Henry Mayhew of a lodging house in London. Quote, in the morning, he drew, for purposes of ablution, a basin full of water from a pailful kept in the room. In the water were floating dead, or apparently alive, bugs and lice, which my informant was convinced had fallen from the ceiling, shaken off by the tread of someone walking in the rickety apartments above. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Apparently, the bedbugs were so bad in some of these lodging houses that people were told you should get half drunk for, to get a decent night's sleep because the bedbugs will keep you up. Wow. They could be seen, quote, crawling from house to house, escaping through exterior windows and doors and traveling along walls, pipes and gutters, end quote. I mean, that has to be an exaggeration, but I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I will say when you asked, can you feel (laughs) the bugs? I feel feel like you would feel those. (laughs) Yeah. I mean. (laughs) Like that you would feel. Yeah. 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 These are not, these are. These are massive. Not subtle. Massive numbers. Yeah. And this is my favorite quote. I've read so many, but this is my favorite quote. Here, nearly every house is a haunted house. After dark, there is no place more eerie, no torture more prolonged and blood-curdling than that enacted here year after year, no atrocity more revolting than the nightly human sacrifice. For there are vampires. I have seen them. I have smelt them. Uh-uh. Ay-yay-yay-yay-yay. Yeah. The bed bug situation was truly a nightmare, as John Southall pointed out in his 1730 A Treatise on Bugs. He called them 
a nauseous, venomous insect. (laughs) (laughs) Clearly, this was not going to be a live and let live situation. No. Mm -mm. And that's mostly what I'm going to focus on for the rest of the history section. By the 1600s, 1700s, there was no more land left undiscovered by bedbugs. They were everywhere. It had become a matter of war between humans and bedbugs. And the first weapon to be employed in this war was hand-to-hand combat, which was, as you can imagine, highly unpleasant. Mm -hmm. From a 1673 description, quote, This insect, if it be crushed or bruised, emits a most horrid and loathsome stench, so that those that are bitten by them are often in doubt whether it be better to endure the trouble of their bitings or kill them and suffer their most odious and abominable stink. Yeah, end quote. (laughs) And while manually smushing bugs always remained a viable and sometimes necessary option— There are only so many bugs that you can smoosh in a night. And other strategies evolved to deal with the growing infestations, namely prevention and then chemical and non-chemical control techniques. But most importantly, vigilance. There is so much more literature on the history of bedbug management than I ever expected. And it is absolutely riveting. And hilarious. And so you should definitely check out some of these papers that I'll mention at the end because I'm only going to cover so much here. So let's let's get to it. England's first bedbug exterminators began popping up in the late 17th century, the most famous of which was Tiffin and Son of London, who exclusively served the nobility and who advertised themselves as Quote, may the destroyers of peace be destroyed by us, Tiffin and Son, bug destroyers to her majesty. <laughs> End quote. <laughs> Love it. Uh, they were so like snobby and classist. It's, it's, <laughs> they, they said, this is literally a quote, I work for the upper classes only. Wow. And then then this quote, my work is more method and I may call it scientific treating of bugs rather than wholesale murder. (laughs) Just like, (laughs) uh, okay. (laughs) Uh. And the main strategy that Tiffin and Son used for bedbug control was prevention by constantly monitoring and checking for bugs. And among other things, they recommended inspecting everything as much as possible, especially secondhand furniture or linens, uh, moving into an old house, stuff like that. And one of my favorite things that I learned about bedbugs is how they drove bed design. What? They changed the way beds were designed, or at least had played a major role. Okay, so when you picture... Like a bed from I don't know the rent like a fancy bed and nobility from the Renaissance. Uh-huh. What do you what do you picture? I don't know, like the posts and like drapes and things. Yeah, like you can turn it into like a little cave. Uh huh. Yeah, there's tons of like curtains around it and everything. Yeah, really ornately carved right. designs. Lots of, maybe lots of lots of crevices. Yeah, yeah. No more crevices mm. was the advice. 
Hmm. So John Southall, who's, who called bedbugs that nauseous, venomous insect, he recommended that people should make beds as wood-free as possible, easy to disassemble, and have fewer nooks and crannies for the bugs to hide in. Huh. So like get rid of those velvet curtains, get rid of those tassels, get rid of the ornately carved wood. That's all prime bed bug real estate. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I just, I thought that was so interesting, sort of this this need to constantly disassemble and reassemble beds was was because of bed bugs, right? To To treat and watch for bed bugs. Sometimes it would be like, oh, you should make it with this type of wood, not that type of wood, because this type of wood is repellent, whatever. But bed design in hospitals especially made a big impact because mm-hmm. hospitals were often hugely infested. I, there's a quote to support this quote, bugs are frequently a greater evil to the patient than the malady for which he seeks a hospital, end quote. Oh, man. The number of times I feel like we've talked about things that kill you in hospitals that are not the thing that you went there for <laughs> on this podcast. Oof. Mm-hmm. And so many hospitals started to use iron beds, yeah. like beds entirely made out of iron, to combat the bugs. I feel like that's it's so interesting because that's what I picture like old timey hospital beds, right? Or like the metal, just like those metal frame beds. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And huh. so to have this metal frame bed uh, was really a big benefit when you were pouring boiling water or arsenic or applying sulfur in the crevices. Uh, when you needed to pull the beds away from the walls, mm-hmm. stand them in pails of oil, you wanted to douse the slats or springs or crevices in bacon grease. I mean, okay, these Ugh. things were not always like great choices <laughs> or <laughs> effective choices. Uh, could you just imagine the smell of like rotting bacon grease on your no, bed? Please stop. But um, having iron beds really helped with that constant treatment that they needed. If you weren't using bacon grease, you could also use these highly guarded patent formulas like PDQ, pesky devil's quietus, or pyrethrum powder, which is an insecticide derived from plants, chrysanthemums. The point is there were many different options at your disposal. But despite if you used every single one of these options, despite if you hired the most reputable exterminator, despite keeping a constant watch for the bugs, you couldn't be sure that you would defeat them. Mm -hmm. And the problem would only get worse during the Industrial Revolution as people flocked to the city in droves. Throughout the late 1800s and into the early 1900s, bedbugs were for sure winning the war. There was really no contest. Infestations went from seasonal to year-round as population density went up, apartment density went up, and central heating began Mm -hmm. to be incorporated into buildings, which allowed bed bugs to just keep living their best life year-round. Year-year-round, baby. Mm -hmm. I read one paper that estimated about a third of dwellings in major European cities in the 1930s and 1940s were infested. Hmm. And half of London had bed bugs. Mm -hmm. The Western Hemisphere was no different. In 1895, a lawsuit in Chicago concluded with the jury ruling that no one should pay rent in a house that was infested with bedbugs. And newspapers were like, um, 
no one in Chicago is going to be paying rent then. (laughs) (laughs) Many landlords began to require, and some still do, a prospective tenant to disclose any history with bedbugs. And that, of course, discriminated against those earning low incomes who tended to be at higher risk of exposure to bedbugs. But no one was truly exempt from the threat of bedbugs. They were found on buses, taxis, trains, planes, and automobiles, inside televisions and radios at repair shops, at the theater, library, hospitals, schools, daycare, prisons, hotels, office buildings, restaurants, fire and police stations, stores, funeral homes, everywhere. Still true. It, yeah, still true. Soldiers during World War I and World War II were engaged in another war alongside the political one as bedbugs prospered. They invaded the cork lining of helmets and they bit soldiers' heads. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. They occupied every possible bunk in living quarters, causing such a morale issue during World War II that there were congressional hearings to figure out how to get rid of these bugs. Wow. Which ultimately led to the most effective, economical, and apparently safer, to humans anyway, solution that the world had ever seen in the fight against bedbugs, DDT. DDT. A.K.A. dichlorodiphenyl trichloroethane. I think I got that right. I think you nailed it. (laughs) By the 1940s, the world had come a long way from the bacon grease ointment days of the 17 or 1800s. But while some of these insecticides may have worked against the bugs, they were also often deadly to humans because they included things like cyanide gas, mercury chloride, phenol, kerosene, and so on. DDT, on the other hand, was also toxic, but less so. It also didn't have to come into contact directly with the bugs to work. Like you could kind of just set it and forget it, and it would last for much, much longer than many of the other compounds, which would lose efficacy after like a few hours. I'm not going to tell the epic story of the rise and fall of DDT, because I think we're planning on covering it later this season. I thought also you've touched a lot on it in like our dengue episode and... Maybe a couple of others. I have no memory of that. You've definitely at least mentioned like all of that story. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm going to just real quick go through a couple of things, especially as it pertains to bed bugs. Mm -hmm. So DDT was first synthesized in 1874, but mostly forgotten about for like 65 years or so. Um, And then in in 1939, when it was rediscovered by a Swiss chemist named Paul Muller, who would later go on to get a Nobel Prize for this, DDT was found to be incredibly effective, like I said. And so it was shortly deployed all around the world to kill everything, including bedbugs. And you could find it and buy it anywhere. It seemed like the miracle in the short term, in terms of bed bug control, was within, you know, five to seven years of when DDT was available, researchers had a really hard time finding any bed bug populations that they could research. What? And by the 1960s, infestations in most industrialized countries were rare. Bed bug awareness campaigns fell by the wayside. And I would bet that if you plotted like the number of research articles about bed bugs from the early 1900s to today, 
you'd see a big boom up to the 1940s and then a crash in the 1950s, 1960s, and then, and then. And then. Yeah. And then it comes back up. First, resistance to DDT, which happened mm-hmm. pretty soon after its introduction, of course. And then the prohibition of DDT, for very good reasons, meant that bedbugs slowly rebounded. And that slow trickle of papers in the 1970s, maybe reporting on like, oh, resistance here, oh, a case here, that would turn into this like full-on wave in the early 2000s as bedbugs found their way back into our beds, our couches, our futons, our beanbags, our homes. The first sign that bedbugs might be back came in 1998 in the form of an article describing an apparent increase in bedbug bites in Cambridge, England. And notably, this article mentioned how no insecticide seemed effective. A couple of years later, a report from the U.S. also mentioned that bedbug bites might be on the rise. And in 2001, Venezuela reported the first instance of bedbugs in 30 years. Anecdotes then turned into data, which put a number to the bedbug resurgence. In the UK, between 1997 and 2000, a six-fold increase in bedbug infestations. In Australia, between 1999 and 2006, a 4,500% rise in bedbug numbers. Australia's numbers are bananas, and they were, like, the easiest to find. So it's (laughs) fascinating to me. Like, Australia, doing a great job counting, but, like, woof. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah, yeah. A lot of the papers that I read were from Australia. Yeah, huh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, these these numbers are, like, hard to, because they're also different, but, like— their percent, their whatever. Um, And so, for instance, like that, those numbers in Australia were over a seven-year period, whereas in the U.S. in one year, 2002 to 2003, it was a 500% increase in calls about bedbugs. Right. So, like, how do you measure bedbug prevalence? Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, regardless of, like, how to relate these numbers to each other, what they really means, it's pretty obvious that this is a global trend. Mm Mm-hmm. What drove this rise in bedbugs? I mean, it seems like there are a lot of different factors at work here, but most people point towards the rise in insecticide resistance, increased global travel, as well as a lack of public awareness, at least in the early days of their reemergence. Mm-hmm. Like people were thought that bedbugs were a problem of the past, right? Bedbugs certainly occupied the headlines for a long time with horror stories and warnings of, you know, if you step one foot into this infested place, you're doomed forever and you'll have to throw away your entire apartment and everything. Mm -hmm. And that all led to an incredible amount of shame and stigma and misinformation and disinformation surrounding something that it's really hard to have control over in your own life. And Mm -hmm. I feel like that's something that, you know, throughout this episode, we're talking about like, oh, it's so horrible to think about these bugs crawling on you in your bed or whatever. And it is. But I feel like that sort of reaction is part of this whole aspect of shame and stigma and like blaming. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So I don't know. I I don't really have a good wrap up point here, but I guess that like. As I was writing this, I was thinking, I remember when bedbugs were dominating headlines, 
but I don't feel like I've read that much about them lately. And so is there still a rampant bed bug problem? Have we just gotten accustomed to it? What's what's going on with bed bugs today, Erin? Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> Let me try and answer that question right after this break. To answer your question briefly, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Okay, I figured, I figured. (laughs) They're still a thing. They're still increasing. They're still spreading. They show no signs of stopping in homes, in hotels, trains, cruise ships, buses, public transportation, office buildings, healthcare facilities, poultry farms. I don't know why those always come up. (laughs) Across the globe, every single continent except Antarctica, they're endemic. They're here with us. The decline that we saw from the use of DDT and other insecticides in the you know mid-1900s wasn't equal across the globe, unsurprisingly. But the resurgence has been global, without mm-hmm. a doubt. And the spread of insecticide resistance, like you mentioned, Erin, has been thought to be one of the real driving forces behind this resurgence. And insecticide and pesticide-resistant bugs, bed bugs, are found across the globe. But this is also in combination with increased global travel that facilitates the spread of these bugs in our luggage and on our clothes and in our towels, etc. And so this has allowed for the spread of the two major species that I mentioned, the common bed bug and the tropical bed bug across the globe. So we really don't see like a, a true dichotomy in these populations like we may be used to in the past with the tropical one mostly being in the tropics and mm-hmm. the common one mostly being in temperate areas. They're both really widespread today. The other thing that compounds this that I find really interesting is that for the most part, Across the globe, in the U.S., in Europe, everywhere, there aren't centralized monitoring systems for bed bugs. And so the data that we have comes primarily from pest control companies themselves, which is very interesting. And this lack of centralized reporting and relying on private companies means that we're going to have huge differences in how this data is collected, as well as how infestations are actually dealt with. Mm. And so there is a lot of data that suggests that the way that bed bug infestations are dealt with can vary widely, which can contribute to continued spread or worsened spread because they're not actually being dealt with properly. Mm Mm-hmm. And some of the data, I will say that a lot of companies are collecting a lot of this data, which is shocking. Like in the U.S. in 2015, studies, I think by Orkin, suggested that 80% of hotels in the U.S. dealt with at least one infestation in that year. 80% of hotels in the U.S. Wow. 
Yeah. And like you mentioned, some of the numbers out of Australia, like thousands of percent increase in reporting, in numbers, et cetera, et cetera. They're everywhere. They're everywhere. And they're not going to go anywhere. That's, I think, the biggest, the the reality of it. Yeah. One thing that I want to talk about, because it's this podcast and because it's just fascinating, is that every other time that we have talked about an insect on this podcast, we have talked about the pathogens that that insect is spreading to humans. Mm-hmm. We have talked about those insects as vectors, fleas, lice, mosquitoes, ticks, all of them as vectors of disease, infectious disease. Uh, listeners, you may have noticed in the biology section, I didn't mention that at all. What's right? going on? What's up with that? So I want to talk about it a little bit because I think it's one of the most interesting areas of future research for bedbugs. The idea of bedbugs as a vector of infectious diseases, like every other bloodsucker that we've ever talked about on this podcast, is not anything new. But the central dogma across all of the literature is that bedbugs are not vectors. Bedbugs do not transmit disease. It's repeated over and over. That is what the CDC says. That is the official statement. But here's the thing. It's not because they can't. And we know this now, today, because plenty of studies that go back way longer than I realized, actually, demonstrate that the, and I'll quote here, natural transmission cycle of multiple human pathogenic microbes can be completed in bedbugs, end quote, when they are artificially infected under laboratory conditions. So a lot of different studies have infected bedbugs with various microbes and been able to have those microbes grow in the bedbug and then actually be passed by the bedbugs, be shed by the bedbugs. The list of these pathogens includes, but is not limited to, Chagas disease, mm-hmm. Trypanosoma cruzi, Bartonella quintana, a.k.a. trench fever, uh-huh. Lausborn relapsing fever, Borrelia recurrensis, various other rickettsias, possibly Yersinia pestis, a.k.a. plague. Okay. And there are probably more. So previously, it was really thought that physiologically, biologically, bedbugs just can't transmit disease. But that's not true because we know that biologically, bedbugs can become infected. Mm-hmm. Various pathogens can undergo whatever things they need to in this bedbug, in the, the vector host that they would normally do in, say, a kissing bug. They can do that in the bed bug, and then the bed bugs can shed these pathogens. And yet, we still don't have any convincing evidence that bed bugs are in fact transmitting any of these diseases in real life. I mean, I feel like that makes sense. Because first of all, if you think about a mosquito or mm-hmm. a kissing bug or a tick or whatever, Compared to bed bugs, there's not as much host hopping because a bed bug is living in your bed. 
Uh-huh. And so it's going to feed on the same person night after night after night after night. Potentially, but in a hotel, you've got a different person in that bed every single night. It's true, but it's still very different. I feel like it's still very different. I feel like it's ecologically limiting in that right. way. So that's that's the big question is if it's not because of a biological barrier, then is it an ecological barrier. Well, and then the other thing, too, is thinking about because all of the pathogens that you described have different transmission routes. So like right. the fact that a bed bug will shed these different pathogens, mm-hmm. is that enough for infection? Right. right. Well, but we can, we can, for example, in the case of T. cruzi, go on to infect other animals from bed bugs. Mm-hmm. Right. In under laboratory conditions. But how how often is one bed bug encountering all these different animals? It's a hundred percent. These are these are all of the questions that I think are so interesting and fascinating, because, yes, th- what this tells us is that it's potentially ecological environmental factors that are precluding bed bugs from serving as vectors in their natural environments. Yeah. But. What are those specific barriers and under what conditions could they potentially be overcome if the conditions of human bedbugs interactions change in the future? Yeah, I think that's interesting to think about in terms of historical infestations of bedbugs when they were like much, much higher. And maybe they did have more opportunities to play a role in human to human transmission of something. But it's hard to see nowadays necessarily but um i mean like you said like it's possible yeah i think it's fun and interesting especially just because i think that the dogma for a long time was that because we've never seen sustained transmission of any human pathogens from these bed bugs it must be that they're incapable of being vectors right. but now we know that that's not true biologically Right. What is the barrier? Is it a physiological barrier? Probably not. But is it an ecological barrier? Seems like likely. Yeah, which I think is just so, so interesting to think about it as an ecological and environmental barrier rather than a biological one, especially because so many vectors that we talk about on this podcast are so specific. Right. Right. It's like one pathogen, one vector. But bed bugs are over here like, well, we could do it, but we're just not gonna. I mean, you know? thank goodness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> one less thing to stress about. Yeah. With bed bugs. Yeah. So, yeah, that's that's what I have, Aaron. Bed bugs. They're everywhere. They're itchy. But at least they're not giving us diseases. <laughs> as far as we know. <laughs> Well, sources? <laughs> sources. Uh, I have a bunch. I'm going to call out two in particular. One is by Roth et al., the one that I mentioned earlier, bed bugs evolved before their bat hosts and did not co-speciate with ancient humans. And then also the one I mentioned at the very top by Boynton from 1965 called The Bed Bug and the Age of Elegance. I had a number of different papers, a couple of my favorite on just the general biology. Um, one is titled The Biology of the Bed Bugs in Annual Reviews Entomology from 2007. There was a great one from 2012 that was Bed Bugs Clinical Relevance and Control Options in Clinical Microbiology Reviews. And then I've got a number of more papers on the bed bugs as vectors in the biology labs. Um, so you guys can read more about that. 
on our website. You can find the sources, all of these, from this episode and all of our episodes. This podcast will kill you.com. That's where they'll be. Thank you to Bloodmobile for providing the music for this episode and all of our episodes. Thank you to Liana Squillacci, our amazing sound mixer. Thank you to the Exactly Right Network. And thank you to you listeners for listening. This is a fun kind of different one. Yeah, I hope hope that you don't regret sticking with it. (laughs) This episode that made you itchy. And a special thank you to our wonderful, generous, so appreciated patrons. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Well, until next time, wash your hands. You filthy animals.